I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to Censored, the podcast where I take literary smut very seriously. I'm Aoife Vrithnach, and if you're looking for a filthy book, I'll steer you in the right direction. Follow me on Twitter, at CensoredPod, for more on censorship. If you can support my work, check out patreon.com slash censoredpod for show notes and bonus smut. But whatever you do, please rate and review the pod in Apple Podcasts so more people can find the smut train. This episode's book is a little witchy and a lot blasphemous. For your delectation, I've read Ethel Manon's Lucifer and the Child from 1946. It opens with a young girl meeting a tall, dark, horned stranger in a forest. I'm telling you now that no children are horribly murdered in this book, which is a relief. I've read enough of those to do me for a lifetime. Nonetheless, there are undercurrents of sexual weirdness in the relationship between the young girl and the man who may or may not be Lucifer, the Prince of Darkness. The author, Ethel Manon, is an interesting figure, being well known in her own lifetime for her radical views on sex. She advocated free love, abortion on demand, and was shagging WB Yeats in the mid-1930s. Manon wrote this book in just six months. In her entire career, she published 95 works, not just novels, but memoirs, travel writing, political tracts and books on child education. She was a writing machine, publishing multiple works a year. She also had a grow for Ireland, staying in Connemara for long periods of time. Obviously, she wrote about this too in her Connemara journal. Given her political views, it's maybe not surprising the Irish censor banned some of her books. To work out if it was the book or the author that annoyed the Irish censor, I'm joined by Victoria Pearson, a PhD candidate in University College Cork, who researches Catholicism in 18th century Ireland. But more importantly for this book, she's a bit of a goth who enjoys reading horror and supernatural works. Hi, Victoria. Welcome to the pod. Thanks for having me back on CensorPod. I'm absolutely delighted to do a second contribution. Yes, because you did talk about the convent sex crimes in uh, Maria Monk in season one, if anyone wants to go back and listen. Yes, I did. And I suppose that had very much gothic overtones as well. So it was only natural that you would invite me back to talk about Lucifer and the Child. 
we're actually recording this just before Halloween and All Saints Day, which are described as a witch's Sabbath in this book. So we're pretty much on brand at the moment. Yeah, so just let us, we'll hold hands and we'll ask, is there anybody there? Is there anybody there? (laughs) (laughs) Usually I have to pick a drink to go with the book. And the only thing I remember from the book is rum, because Lucifer buys rum for the virginal saintly Marion uh, in a dingy dockside pub. And she kind of blames the rum for later shagging him. So I think rum would be a good choice. I think rum would be an excellent choice. Now, I, well, I could, I will, I could imagine that I have a glass of it, but my father is partial to a drink called monkey's blood. And I think that would be excellent for this book because it is dark rum, dark Jamaican rum with a dash of blackcurrant or blacker, as they say in court. Uh, blacker. <laughs> my father picked up this really kind of unusual taste because in his youth, he was a glass collector stroke barman in um, the Long Valley in Cork City, which was a ve- which was frequented by travellers and salespersons and sailors from all over the world. The the shop or the the publican Humphrey Moynihan what used to change people's money. So there used to be a lot of sailors coming to the bar to get their money changed, particularly rubles, which kind of fits in with Ethel Manning and her kind of socialism. So to get started then, why do you think it was banned? I'm torn between saying Chapter one, where it's all a bit creepy and weird. The the child, Jenny Flower, claims that she doesn't believe in God and worse, that she doesn't care about hell or any of its darknesses. So I thought that was pretty offensive to very Catholic censors. But what do you think? Anything else? I would say even a mere glance at the title probably would have been enough to get it banned. Not only do you have a mention of the devil, you have a mention in the devil in relation to a child. And that's probably, no, we just won't go there. Did they read it? Who knows? I mean, I think even the title would be enough to get that, you know, kind of brought forward to the top of the agenda of books that we need to ban and ban now straight away. I think as well, when I read this book, it was sort of a real watershed moment in my reading life because suddenly here was a woman in 1946 talking about every taboo you could possibly imagine about Irish society not alone in the 30s 40s and 50s but even now all of those dark secrets and skeletons that we have kept so forced back into the back of the the closet she's just letting it all hang out we have a brilliant phrase on the north side of cork it's like when a situation is so desperate there's literally nothing else you can do people would say fuck this for a game of marbles and i think that's exactly what ethel manning does when she goes to write this book she just sees the ills of society that she perceives. She sees the secrets that people keep. She sees kind of a very awkward, very dysfunctional way that people operate around her. She just aims to write a book where 
those secrets are very much out in the open. Well, on the South side, we used to say, fuck this for a game of soldiers. So that's the only difference. (laughs) One of the things that's really interesting that appears in chapter one that I wasn't expecting when you talk about airing the dirty laundry and opening the closet is it's all about pregnancy outside of marriage and its treatment within the welfare system. I mean, she talks about a woman giving birth and adoption and all of that stuff that's currently very live in our society today. And I think that was what was so um, unsettling about the book, that she doesn't have a lead into it. Actually, kind of her her starting premise is the fact this child has been born. It has been born out of wedlock. It has been born to a mother who has pretty modern views on sexuality um, a mother who, you know, uses, well, I wouldn't say uses, that's the wrong word, but a mother who is relieved at the fact that her brother and his wife are going to take this child off her hands because she really doesn't know what to do with it if this child is born. She she, do, she doesn't want the pregnancy. She doesn't want to be a mother. She doesn't want to be, she doesn't want the child initially. And she's just relieved that the child is taken off her hands. That was going on wholesale in Irish society not just in the 1940s. I mean, going back, you know, many, many years before that. But nobody's talking about it. This is the kind of one of the first times that I've ever come across this being um, verbalised. Like there are other books where it's hinted at. Those sorts of tropes maybe are used as the culmination of a book, but they're never used as the starting premise. You can tell that it's written in a a fury. She she wants to expose and she wants to talk about these issues, not because she's discovered some deep, dark secret. It's because these things are going on all around her all the time. And it's more maybe the hypocrisy of the fact that people are doing it but not talking about it is what she's really going for. There's a huge discussion in this book about good versus evil. Who are the goodies and who are the baddies? And what virtues do we attribute to the goodies and the kind of what sinister kind of characteristics do we attribute to the baddies I think that she is really questioning those like one of the things that really hit me with this book is the whole in terms of the whole conversation around sex is that she lays out the stall kind of at one point where she equates witches and witchcraft to kind of very earthy, sort of the way we kind of see the kind of revival of witchcraft in modern times as being kind of a return to nature and paganism and earthiness. She equates sort of the virtues of that and the virtues of, you know, being in love and um, having sex and being attracted to somebody the virtues of goodness but acquaints them then with Lucifer and all the characters she lines up as being baddies in the book and that's a really interesting dichotomy because she's making you question who do you really think are the goodies and baddies she's sort of an unreliable narrator in a lot of on a lot of the book because all of the kind of the Christian virtues that she outlines, you know, she's she has a kind of a negative overtone to a lot of the Christian virtues she, she outlines all the old tropes that we have, you know, cleanliness is next to godliness and the children must be always well behaved and you have to consider your neighbours and you have to be to contribute and be a good citizen and that 
you must always help people that are more unfortunate than yourself, they begin to kind of manifest as very sinister virtues in this book. And I think in 1940s Ireland, I think it would have been in a, the revealing of all those kind of founding principles of Irish society, a questioning and the sinister elements of those being brought out that would have um, very much frightened the censors off. One of the things that's kind of unusual about this book, actually, is how she plays with the interface between supernatural and biological explanations. She alludes to it in the jacket, you know, the blurb on the outside, like what's real? How do you know what's real? At one point she says, people who hallucinate believe their hallucinations. So how can you say that this is not true? And I think it's always asking questions around, can you believe in heaven and hell within a secular society? There's a lot about that binary between heaven and hell and good and evil. And I think that explored through these two central characters, Lucifer, well, we don't know if he's Lucifer, that's the whole point. And this woman who may or may not be an angel or stand for the Virgin Mary in some way. And it seems to be quite a complicated thing that she's setting up, really, within the horror supernatural genre, for example. This is Ethel Manning's only book where she talks in a kind of a supernatural genre. Ethel Manning would be probably best known for her, her, fic- her the realism in her fiction. And I think she is pushing the boundaries of herself by writing in a supernatural genre. In fact, she's kind of like forerunner to a lot of kind of modern horror that we see nowadays. You know, that it, that these like horror movies setting, taking place in very realistic um, locations, gone are the hammer horror, you know, sets of like big gothic mansions with the thunder rolling. And everything now has been very kind of streamlined and pulled back and, and the real horror is that, you know, that the monster is inside with us. It's not out there in the great darkness, you know, that it's lurking amongst us. So I think she is one of the forerunners of that, of setting this sort of supernatural story in a very real setting. Most of the book takes place in working class East London, just before the outbreak of the Second um, World War. So it's a very tough neighbourhood that she's talking about. But she sets it deep in the heart of um, East London, kind of warts and all. And she kind of shows sort of the daily grind and kind of the grit and dirt of living in a working class community at the time. She she shows, you know, the kind of daily drudgery of women's lives. She shows the kind of um, strategies and the tactics that they use to sort of get from day to day. She shows you what life is like for a child growing up in this like kind of industrial East London. Shows again the loneliness of living in a community like that, you know, that is away from kind of a natural setting. You're kind of caught in this dirty, bleak world. And there's a certain sort of loneliness. I think Jennifer or Jenny, the, the child in it, really represents that. She's kind of got a longing to go out into the country. What she wants is to go to out into the wild of the countryside and I think Ethel kind of the realism of Ethel's work really comes through there and of course obviously then there is the great debate and I think she's very very clever about this the great debate of 
does the devil actually exist? Yeah, that's one of the, that's what's quite fascinating is the whole book is about what do you believe? Do you believe in the devil and why? What always fascinated fascinated me about the devil, especially in an Irish context, is the more he became a man, the less potent he became. It's when he's like kind of this whispering seducer, you know, that is at work amongst you, but, you know, is kind of in spiritual form, you know, like he's sort of twisting and turning and kind of whispering in your ear all around you. That's really kind of the sinister element of him. It's when he takes form that he kind of loses his potency. It's an interesting dynamic of that the devil sort of is there to surprise you when you die, kind of, ha ha, you were wrong for not believing in me. Look at me now. <laughs> <Do you> know, <laughs> I have you now. I tricked you. Having him be real and effectual then in the everyday world kind of takes away from that, him as a threat, you know, that when you die, you're going to fall into the realm of the devil. He's going to be there to to pull you back from heaven and take you down into this nasty, dirty, dark underworld. To kind of return to the issue of sex in the book, which I spoke about briefly in the introduction, there's a number of narratives of sexuality and asexuality running through it. There is Jenny and her infatuation with the man who is Lucifer, which sometimes seems sexual, especially at the beginning. But then I felt it kind of was blocked at the very end in the last two chapters or so. And then there's a kind of a, a love triangle almost between Lucifer, Marion Drew and Jenny that becomes really quite strange and toxic. Like there's so much going on about sex in an inappropriate way, it seems, within this book. I think Ethel's not interested in talking about sex within the parameters that would have been acceptable in the 1940s. She wants to move the conversation outside these kind of neatly defined boxes in watch into like things that she sees around her all the time. I know what you're saying about Jenny. And I wonder, is it like kind of our 21st century perspectives? Jenny's on it and um, she's with her Sunday school and they're on an outing to Epping Forest. And she wanders off from the group into the forest and she comes across this man standing with horns on his head. And from the minute that he appears, you're waiting for something dire to happen. I think that's our perception now, because there's so much literature and film and art about children being threatened by men in remote situations. Again, in probably the last 30 years, that devil has really become very, very real to us. And, you know, it, it was and a terribly sinister force in our society, you know, has emerged in terms of that. But so you're waiting for something to happen to Jenny, you know, and it doesn't. But I know what you're saying. There's a, there's an inappropriateness in the way that this this man behaves towards her. You know, he picks her, he spends the day with her, he picks her up and he brings her home. Nobody in her, like, so, Sunday school seemed to notice that this child has wandered off. You know, and then like her her mom, Ivy Flower, and then Nell, who we find out later is actually her biological mother, is both of them like Ivy doesn't have a clue that this is going on. Neither does she ever accept expect that there's any impropriety going on with this child. This child leaves the house for days at a time and wanders off and she never suspects anything that's happening. And then Nell suspects it because she's more worldly, but thinks 
ah, well, he's been nice to her so far, so sure, it'd be grand. I think they're the inconsistencies, the little evils, the little things that creep in that Ethel really wanted to expose. We have these massive, grandiose, grand gesture arguments against things that we consider massive evils in our society. But it's all those tiny, insidious little evils that come in that we don't even notice. It's the complacency of these women that she's sort of kind of um, drilling a hole at. But also, I just reveled in Nell as a character. Do you know, when you meet her first, you just like, totally revel in her because, you know, she's thrown off the shackles of this working class community. She has no time for washing and scrubbing. You know, she's dressed up to the nines at 10 o'clock in the morning. And she's like, um, and you don't know, is that because, you know, is it, she's just completed the walk of shame home from the night before. But you know, she's totally thrown off, you know, any sort of moralistic attitude that she would have grown up with. You know, she is now it doesn't ever explicitly say, you know, Nell is a barmaid in a local pub down by the docks. Ethel sometimes alludes to the fact that she might be working as a prostitute, sometimes alludes to the fact that she might be working maybe as like a high end escort. And then other times she just kind of states that, well, Nell is neither of these things. She's just a woman trying to make her way in the world. And she's a woman who really likes sex. She really likes it. She knows how to use it to get what she wants. She's the Samantha of the story. She just likes sex. And she doesn't even remember who she has sex with. Lucifer goes to her pub and orders a drink from her and says, don't you remember me? And she's like, not really. And it doesn't bother her that she doesn't remember him. <laughs> Could you imagine that? Could you imagine how fucking pissed off the devil must have been? He's like, I'm the I'm, I'm the devil. <laughs> you can't even fucking remember me. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Nell 
is so at a loss as to who the father of Jenny might be is that she's she regularly searches the child's face for any sort of characteristic that she could maybe vaguely remember and attribute to to who Nell's father is. And what I love about that is it's a well-known fact. Nell doesn't make a secret of her attitude. She doesn't make a secret of her lifestyle. And in, and ultimately, she's one of the characters who succeeds, you know, in this really, you know, kind of realistic, you know, neither good nor evil, like, amoral world. She succeeds. And um, everybody else kind of picks up the pieces around her. And I loved Ethel for that, for, for creating Nell in such a way as that she did, Do you know. I, I couldn't get over how by the end of it, I felt more sorry for Lucifer than anyone else because Jenny, Jenny casts a spell to kill Marion and he's devastated, even though their relationship had gone really kind of weird. And he was devastated just because their relationship had not been sustainable. And then she dies and he's left with Jenny and he kind of, he seems like a beaten man. He's lost something quite important to who he is. Well, yeah, he seems very defeated. And it's sort of like, I think Lucifer was hoping too that maybe Jenny might pick up, might surprise him and might turn out to have some good qualities in the end. And that would nearly redeem himself. He'd be nearly redeemed through her. But then there's a certain fatalism in the book then where he's like, well, yeah, there's another one gone by the wayside. I'll never be saved. I'll never regain my position in heaven. So before we do the bingo, then I want to ask you, did you enjoy the book and would you recommend it? I thoroughly enjoyed this book. This book was a breath of fresh air to me, I think, in terms of what it was talking about. It's a female like confessional text, but it's a confessional text. that's not stylized at all. Almost like she rolled up her sleeves and went into like a, a tin bath with a scrubbing board and told she and like literally washed the dirty laundry out and detailed that for you in terms of what she's talking about, in terms of sex, in terms of our ideas of fatherhood. It's that whole notion that she has about that, about, you know, that the that sex and children are such in the realm of women that we leave fatherhood out of the story all the time. All those ideas to me were absolutely fascinating. And in the way that um, Ethel used the tropes of the devil, of witchcraft, of a supernatural world to discuss what was going on around her, I would highly recommend Lucifer and the Devil. Or the Child, sorry. <laughs> Lucifer and the Child. I found it interesting. I just think it does show that she wrote it in such a short space of time. I kind of felt that there wasn't enough attention paid to the repetitious elements within the book, that at times I was like, it's a bit slow. And from my perspective, because of some of the work I've done in the past, the chapter on the Diddy Koi or the the nomadic people that she describes as Diddy Koi, uh, who are supposed to be like really low class gypsies, I found that really, really unconscionable and 
completely bizarre in the context of the book as well. So it just felt like it was thrown in there as a... I, I have to say, I didn't, I really didn't understand that chapter. And it would be something that, you know, that would be kind of number one in the questions that I would like to ask Ethel if, you know, if you had her before you. What point was she trying to make with the Diddy Kai? Because, again, she had always sort of, th- like, torn throughout the novel, she to- she tears down notions of, like, you know, cleanliness is next to godliness. And then she comes along with the Diddy Kai, and I didn't really get that. They've kind of, like, thrown off all of the morality of the society, you know, that lived in the cities and the towns and the villages, and that they were kind of free really they were kind of free to do whatever they wanted and it was sort of kind of that like kind of purer form of communism that that ethel would have idolized herself she describes them in such a negative way it's all about the racial hierarchy within this kind of folk revival thing that happened in the early 20th century and how nomads are split into pure blood romany gypsies who are really good and nice and we like them because they're authentic and then there's just a, you know, a declining scale, which includes Irish travellers who live in Britain are also stigmatised because they're not the right sort of travellers. And it's just such a terrible thing to put in there. And it's it has no relationship to the plot in any way. It's just thrown in there to talk about blood and hierarchies. And some people are so dirty that there's nothing you can do for them. She uses it sort of like... It's the moment in the book where Jenny has gone past the point of no return. She is sort of saying that that is the that now is like the ultimate example of her of her moral corruption, of her absolute moral bankruptcy, is that she's living with these people who have no moral compass whatsoever. Yeah, and who are entirely degenerate and degraded by virtue of their uh, cultural debasement and their low class origins, you know, they are the ultimate symbol of the worst thing that Manon can find to say that English society has to offer. And that's what sort of surprised me too about her description at the very end of Paradise Court, because this Paradise Court where the devil presumably like says that he lives or is resident in, in, in when he's in London is um, the house that he lives in is looked after as sort of the landlord of the house that he lives in is a coloured man who she suggests is sort of Jamaican and he has got he's married to a white woman and then they have a number of mixed race children and he she sort of suggests that living amongst them is the most morally bankrupt thing as well that she could imagine yes so I suppose Ethel's prejudices do creep in to the book as well. Uh, yeah, I think. And with that, we have to turn to censorship bingo because we need to talk about how high her score is going to be. So let's see how Lucifer and the Child plays out. First off is breasts. I really don't think it mentioned anything to do with physical body parts, did it? No, I don't think so. Only in descriptions of like how clothes fit. Did you notice that that was like a common reoccurring thing in the book? Nell's clothes, yes, and her shapeliness and how good her figure looked. But I don't think it's really enough to say breasts because it's too kind of generic. So we can't take that. Bestiality. Well, now there was a thing where Jenny was in the circle when she's a proper witch and something about the goat and perversions and... It seems to be an implication that she is either witnessing or participating in 
some sort of rituals that are perversions and inversions of normal human behaviour and human love. I, I That wasn't my initial reading of it, Aoife. <laughs> Maybe my mind isn't that filthy. Yeah, I think the way it's written, you could interpret it many ways. The devil, the horned head of the devil and all this sort of thing. There is like kind of an overture. There is, yeah. There's sort of a suggestion of it there. There is. I think given how, you know, people associate Satanism with particularly vile forms of sexuality. And I definitely think the censorship board would have just jumped and said yes. We'll take bestiality. Next up is sex work. Well, Nell does seem to be sort of perhaps occasionally working as a prostitute, but it's never really fully articulated. But she does talk about going out with wealthy blokes who give her lots of money to buy chinchillas. Exactly. I do think we have to check. And also, even though she's Miss Goody Two-Shoes in the book, Ivy has sort of used, you know, having sex with Joe to get herself kind of pretty um, set up. So I think... Ivy has used her sexuality. I mean, it's the number one thing. It's the only thing that she can remember as being the 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 um, inducement to Joe to marry her. Yes. So we can definitely take sex work, I think. And then racism. Well, I think we have to put a big, big old tick on this one, both because of the chapter on the Diddy Kai and then that final location paradise court where the devil is living with uh, a family of mixed race family and Jenny moves in and it's very definitely associated with you know the worst that interracial relationships can produce you know it seems to be the natural home for the devil is among people of color living in London people who are mixed up who aren't you know who are parts of this thing and the other thing but nothing of the whole there's something within the text i think that's really interested about bad blood and descent and like you say the mixed upness of people if they have the wrong sort of blood and i think that is very much a you know it comes from a racist place and it's deeply prejudiced about the biological nature of human beings and i think that is a problem within it. She's a, a contradictory old gal, is Ethel. She is, but I think we have to take racism, really. No avoiding it. Drugs. I didn't think so, really, were there? There are sort of hallucinogenic kind of elements of the text, but no, there's no reference to them actually taking any substance. Yeah, I, I don't think it's enough, really, because it could be magic and supernatural as opposed to consuming what about the old song the old brain fairy song is love is love the drug Aoife (laughs) (laughs) Ethel probably does think love is the drug actually (laughs) the next one we must take is politics because there's a lot about social politics consciences social justice I mean we have to take that with bells on absolutely in 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 true Ethel style, a big fat red marker. Definitely. Then we come to swearing. I didn't think there was any what you would call bad language or foul language, really. Was there? The only one that I can, um, con- that I that really sticks out in my mind is where that ultimate confrontation between Ivy and Jenny, where Ivy reveals to Jenny the true origin of her 
heritage. And she uses the word slut and things like that. That's the only one, which is surprising because you would, you know, in, in definitely in kind of um, Catholic teaching, bad language to, to, would be associated with sinning and then probably ultimately with the devil. But definitely sinning, you know, and moral corruption, you know, bad language. And you would expect the devil, you know, to be effing and blinding left, right and centre, but he's not. No, there isn't a foul word passes his lips. Infidelity. I don't know. Is Who's married and is playing There's away? There's no one really. So I think we can ignore infidelity because although there's lots of the human relationships are very fallible, nobody's actually breaking their marriage vows. Then we come to crime. What was illegal? See, I don't think there is actually any crime in the book. Definitely no genitalia because if there's no boobs, there's nothing else. For a book about the devil... It's like ticking no boxes. <laughs> I know, it's not great, is it? Next one, definite tick, abortion, because there is considerable discussion about termination of pregnancy. Again, it's not to shock. I think Ethel is very clever in this. She's not, she's she's doing it to shock a middle class audience, I think, people who pretend that these things aren't happening. But I think in terms of the ordinary everyday reality of women's lives, I think that's just what she's talking about. And that is one of the more interesting social realist parts of the book, actually. It's really good. And next up is orgies. Well, in spite of the fact you think there'd be lots of orgies and anything satanic, I don't think so. No, there was definitely no mention of an orgy. Then sexual assault. Yes, there is that moment where Jenny is almost assaulted. By that, the the boy, the younger son of the family of the Didikai that she's staying with. Next up, extramarital pregnancy. Well, yes, because Nell gets pregnant outside of marriage and has Jenny. And Ivy kind of gossips about her neighbours being in similar situations, that daughter of their next door neighbour, you know, which is kind of a bit of a horrific story. She gets married off at like 14 to the boy that like that she got pregnant with. Yeah, we'll take we'll take extramarital pregnancy. Masturbation. No, no, there wasn't even a hint. No, well, well, they just slightly suggested about those fantasies that that Marion used to have on her own when she was lying in bed thinking about Lucifer. There are no graphic descriptions of masturbation in the book. No, and not even any suggestion of crises or. Then we come to sex toys. Certainly not. Not even a whiff. No, there's not even like a wooden spoon or a rolling pin or anything. And now suddenly the wooden spoon in the Irish mammy's kitchen acquires a whole new level of meaning. <laughs> yeah, filthy article, yeah. God almighty, a wooden spoon? The thing you use to make the cakes with? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Don't knock it till you try it, Aoife. <laughs> okay, um, no. <laughs> The next one then is feminism. Ethel was a raging feminist, wasn't she, in her day? What she would regard as exposés in the book is, you know, the revealing of, you know, a, a feminine power. I mean, Nell has considerable amount of power. And in the description of, you know, her household chores, she describes how Ivy is stripped daily of her power. And then she describes, you know, kind of the socially acceptable power that's given to Marion as a school teacher but yet no there's this raging 
kind of burning sensation within her. That sex is the ultimate feminine power and sexuality, liberated sexuality, is where women have great power, but they are being turned into household drudges instead. Well, I think we definitely tick feminism then. Then divorce. No, sure, nobody got divorced, did they? No. So we can't take that. There's no divorce. Contraception. Well, I think we've covered the abortion side of things. Was there any reference to contraception? In the description of the services that Mrs. Beadle provides, I think there's sort of a mention of the fact that not only that could she procure an abortion for you, that she could maybe give you something that would prevent you from getting pregnant in the first place. Okay, fair enough. So we'll go for that. It's probably some awful douche made of nettles or something. You read things of like, you know, coins and stuff being used. And... Yeah, I mean, she had some knowledge that would help you in the fertility sense. Yeah, we can take that one for sure. Menstruation. No, I didn't notice anything at all. No, not even in regards to Jenny. No, there was no mention at all of her period, even though it follows her from the age of seven to 16. She is portrayed consistently as a waif-like kind of childlike teenager. Yeah, I can't. Nothing, no, no, nothing kind of jumps out at me, even even about Jenny. No, I think we can ignore that one. And now we come to blasphemy, which I mean, absolutely, absolutely, certainly that a woman called Marion, which is explicitly linked to some sort of divine or angelic aspect ends up shagging the devil is pretty blasphemous. That would stand out. Definitely tick that one. Oral sex. No way. No. Graphic violence. No. No, I think we, we'll have to ignore that one. And finally, queer content. I would say no to this. No, there was nothing that you could interpret as any either way. 10 out of 25 is not bad at all. It's not bad. But like, we are talking about like, you know, the Prince of Darkness here. Yeah, you would expect it to be 25 out of 25 if you're going to talk about Satanism. But you see, I think, you know, and and this is what Ethel is great at teasing out is that is the the role of Lucifer as the suggester, the suggesting the inspirer of people's choices and people's actions rather than, you know, doing them himself in the ordinary mundane it's in the washing of the cups and it's in the darning of your cardigan and it's in the pulling up of your bobby socks that's where the devil lies and that is a truly terrifying thought on which to end our discussion (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much that was great victoria there's so much there i would never have thought this book had so much in it thank you thank you fat Next episode, I'm reading Philip Roth's Portnoy's Complaint from 1969. It's a sex romp through neurotic American Jewish masculinity. I've read half of it so far, and it's eye-wateringly rude. But it wasn't banned in Ireland. Listen in next week to hear why Ireland ignored Portnoy's Complaint and why it caused a censorship scandal in Australia. Same book, two different national stories. In the meantime, ignore the wash-up or the dirty washing, because cleanliness is not next godliness.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.